A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 1 Cairo and the Great Pyramid, Part 2. But the Egyptian, Arab, and Turkish merchants, whether mingling in the general tide or sitting on their counters, are the most picturesque personages in all this busy scene. They wear ample turbans, for the most part white, long vests of striped Syrian silk reaching to the feet, and an outer robe of braided cloth or cashmere. The vest is confined round the waist by a rich sash, and the outer robe, or gibba, is generally of some beautiful degraded color, such as maize, mulberry, olive, peach, sea-green, salmon-pink, sienna-brown, and the like. That these stately beings should vulgarly buy and sell, instead of reposing all their lives on luxurious divans and being waited on by beautiful Circassians, seems altogether contrary to the eternal fitness of things. Here, for instance, is a grand vizier in a gorgeous white and amber satin vest, who condescends to retail pipe-bowls, dull red-clay pipe-bowls of all sizes and prices. He sells nothing else, and has not only a pile of them on the counter, but a bin full at the back of his shop. They are made at Siout in Upper Egypt, and may be bought at the Algerine shops in London almost as cheaply as in Cairo. Another majestic pasha deals in brass and copper vessels, drinking cups, basins, ewers, trays, incense burners, chafing dishes, and the like, some of which are exquisitely engraved with arabesque patterns or sentences from the poets. A third sells silk from the looms of Lebanon, and gold and silver tissues from Damascus. Others again sell old arms, old porcelain, old embroideries, second-hand prayer carpets, and quaint little stools and cabinets of ebony, inlaid with mother-of-pearl. Here, too, the tobacco merchant sits behind a huge cake of latakia as big as his own body, and the sponge merchant smokes his long chibouk in a bower of sponges. Most amusingly of all, however, are those bazaars in which each trade occupies its separate quarter. You pass through an old stone gateway or down a narrow turning, and find yourself amid a colony of saddlers stitching, hammering, punching, riveting. You walk up one alley and down another, between shop-fronts hung round with tasseled headgear and hump-back saddles of all qualities and colors. Here are ladies' saddles, military saddles, donkey saddles, and saddles for great officers of state. Saddles covered with red leather, with crimson and violet velvet, with maroon and gray and purple cloth. Saddles embroidered with gold and silver, studded with brass-headed nails, or trimmed with braid. Another turn or two, and you are in the slipper bazaar, walking down avenues of red and yellow morocco slippers, the former of home manufacture, the latter from Tunis. Here are slippers with pointed toes, turned-up toes, and toes as round and flat as horseshoes, walking slippers with thick soles, and soft yellow slippers to be worn as inside socks, which have no soles at all. These absurd little scarlet bleachers with tassels are for little boys, the brown morocco shoes are for grooms, the velvet slippers embroidered with gold and beads and seed-pearls are for wealthy harems, and are sold at prices varying from five shillings to five pounds the pair. 
The carpet bazaar is of considerable extent, and consists of a network of alleys and counter-alleys opening off to the right of the Muski, which is the Regent Street of Cairo. The houses in most of these alleys are rich in antique lattice windows and Saracenic doorways. One little square is tapestried all around with Persian and Syrian rugs, Damascus saddle-bags, and Turkish prayer-carpets. The merchants sit and smoke in the midst of their goods, and up in one corner an old kawaji, or coffee-seller, plies his humble trade. He has set up his little stove and hanging-shelf beside the doorway of a dilapidated khan, the walls of which are faced with arabesque panellings in old carved stone. It is one of the most picturesque bits in Cairo. The striped carpets of Tunis, the dim grey and blue, or grey and red fabrics of Algiers, the shaggy rugs of Laodicea and Smyrna, the rich blues and greens and subdued reds of Turkey, and the wonderfully varied, harmonious patterns of Persia, have each their local habitation in the neighboring alleys. One is never tired of traversing these half-lighted avenues, all aglow with gorgeous color and peopled with figures that come and go like the actors in some Christmas piece of Oriental pageantry. In the Khan Khalil, the place of the gold and silversmith's bazaar, there is found, on the contrary, scarcely any display of goods for sale. The alleys are so narrow in this part that two persons can with difficulty walk in them abreast, and the shops, tinier than ever, are mere cupboards, with about three feet of frontage. The back of each cupboard is fitted with tiers of little drawers and pigeonholes, and in front is a kind of matted stone step, called a mastaba, which serves for seat and counter. The customer sits on the edge of the mastaba, the merchant squats, cross-legged, inside. In this position he can, without rising, take out drawer after drawer, and thus the space between the two becomes piled with gold and silver ornaments. These differ from each other only in the metal, the patterns being identical, and they are sold by weight, with a due margin for profit. In dealing with strangers who do not understand the Egyptian system of weights, silver articles are commonly weighed against rupees or five-franc pieces, and gold articles against napoleons or sovereigns. The ornaments made in Cairo consist chiefly of chains and earrings, anklets, bangles, necklaces strung with coins or tusk-shaped pendants, amulet cases of filigree or repousse work, and penannular bracelets of rude execution, but rich and ancient designs. As for the merchants, their civility and patience are inexhaustible. One may turn over their whole stock, try on all their bracelets, go away again and again without buying, and yet be always welcomed and dismissed with smiles. L. and the writer spent many an hour practicing Arabic in the Khan Khalil, without, it is to be feared, a corresponding degree of benefit to the merchants. There are many other special bazaars in Cairo, as the sweetmeat bazaar, the hardware bazaar, the tobacco bazaar, the sword-mounters and coppersmiths' bazaars, the Moorish bazaar, where fez-calves, burnouses, and barbary goods are sold, and some extensive bazaars for the sale of English and French muslins, and Manchester cotton goods, but these last are, for the most part, of inferior interest. Among certain fabrics manufactured in England expressly for the eastern market, we observed a most hideous printed muslin, representing small black devils capering over a yellow ground, and we learned that it was much in favor for children's dresses. But the bazaars, however picturesque, are far from being the only sights of Cairo. There are mosques in plenty, grand old Saracenic gates, 
ancient Coptic churches, the Museum of Egyptian Antiquities, and, within driving distance, the tombs of the Caliphs, Heliopolis, the Pyramids, and the Sphinx. To remember in what order the present traveller saw these things would now be impossible, for they lived in a dream, and we were at first too bewildered to catalogue their impressions very methodically. Some places they were for the present obliged to dismiss with only a passing glance, others had to be wholly deferred till their return to Cairo. Meanwhile our first business was to look at Dahabiyas, and the looking at Dahabiyas compelled us constantly to turn our steps and thoughts in the direction of Bulak, a desolate place by the river, where some two or three hundred Nile-boats lay moored for hire. Now most persons know something of the miseries of house-hunting, but only those who have experienced them know how much keener are the miseries of Dahabiyah hunting. It is more bewildering and more fatiguing, and is beset by its own special and peculiar difficulties. The boats, in the first place, are built on the same plan, which is not the case with houses, and except as they run bigger or smaller, cleaner or dirtier, are as like each other as twin oysters. The same may be said of their captains, with the same difference, for to a person who has been only a few days in Egypt, one black or copper-coloured man is exactly like every other black or copper-coloured man. Then each reis, or captain, displays the certificates given to him by former travellers, and these certificates, being apparently in active circulation, have a mysterious way of turning up again and again on board different boats and in the hands of different claimants. Nor is this all. Dahabias are given to changing their places, which houses do not, so that the boat which lay yesterday alongside the eastern bank may be over at the western bank to-day, or hidden in the midst of a dozen others half a mile lower down the river. All this is very perplexing, yet it is as nothing compared with the state of confusion one gets into when attempting to weigh the advantages or disadvantages of boats with six cabins and boats with eight, boats provided with canteen and boats without boats that can pass the cataract, and boats that can't, boats that are only twice as dear as they ought to be, and boats with that defect five or six times multiplied. Their names again, Ghazal, Sarawah, Fostat, Dongola, unlike any names one has ever heard before, afford as yet no kind of help to the memory. Neither do the names of their captains, for they are all Mohammeds or Hassans. Neither do their prices, for they vary from day to day according to the state of the market as shown by the returns of arrivals at the principal hotels. Add to all this the fact that no rais speaks anything but Arabic, and that every word of inquiry or negotiation has to be filtered more or less inaccurately through a dragoman, and then perhaps those who have not yet tried this variety of the pleasures of the chase may be able to form some notion of the weary, hopeless, puzzling work which lies before the Dahabiyah hunter in Cairo. End of section 2